Hello again, I'm Lucy Wright. And I'm Juliet Maxim, and this is Life on Rails. We work in PR at Greater Anglia and host this podcast, which takes a behind-the-scenes look at one of the UK's largest train companies. We're talking to a huge range of people, from train drivers to film liaison staff, as well as some special Greater Anglia celebrities. In this episode, we speak to presenter, writer and director Robbie Knox. So I went to university at UEA in Norwich and I loved it. And you get quite a lot of good bands here, a lot of theatres... UNESCO City of Literature, I think it's a beautiful place. Our resident fairs guru, Ken Strong. If you're going to XYZ place, you will actually save you know, 20 or 30 quid on this particular journey, including the cost of the real card, they were actually saving money there and then. Adrian Booth, Greater Anglia's film liaison consultant. We worked on Killing Eve, I Hate Susie, which was Billy Piper. This is going to hurt with Ben Whishaw for the BBC. And a big one, Jack Ryan for Amazon. That was an enormous setup, that one. And Paula Wilson, one of our area customer service managers. I myself don't have a degree, and there's a number of companies who would not consider me for the role that I'm in now without it. And I'm, as far as I'm aware, I'm not doing too badly. <laughs> to kick things off, though, we're going to speak to Glenn Harwood, one of our driver training managers. Every summer, Greater Anglia sees an increase in the number of people on or near the tracks without permission, and this is a really serious issue. I wanted to speak to Glenn Harwood about it. He is a train driving manager, but has been a qualified train driver for 20 years. Hi Glenn, how are you? Hi Lucy, I'm fine, thank you. Welcome to Life on Rails, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, just talk me through it. Why is it so dangerous for people to be on the tracks without permission? Well, yeah, from the driver's perspective, absolutely dangerous. Having somebody who's not meant to be on the track is a heck of a surprise. Of course, our trains are travelling at high speed. Uh, As a driver, we haven't got a steering wheel. We can't divert round them. We can't then move to another line to avoid them. And ultimately, uh, we have to put our brake into emergency. And and, and unlike when you're crossing the road, a car can stop very quickly. Our trains don't do that. It's about three-quarters of a mile from 100 miles an hour to stopping. And that's in good conditions. We added a little bit of rain into that. The train will slip and slide and could potentially be beyond a mile. So the reaction times are very, very slow for the train in that respect. So for the poor driver who's sitting there, there's nothing more we can do but put our brake into emergency in a hope then that individual is on the track, moves. So it's, it's, it's a very difficult, and it's an extremely dangerous place to be. And ultimately, you know, it's, it's not a playground. And I think we really need to get that in there. It's, it's not a place to be unless you are authorised to be there. Exactly. And it's not just our trains that run. We have um, engineering trains, we have test trains. So yeah. by thinking, oh, I know this line, I live, I've lived near this line for, Absolutely. for years, it's yeah. not just our services that people need to be aware of. It's not. And we've seen that in the past. Actually, those who are regular users quite often are the worst. Because you're right, they think, they think, well, the trains go past me at 10.24. At 10.25, I'm safe to go over. All it takes is a slight delay and they're going to get caught. And vice versa, of course, we have double tracks. So your train may go past you, but forgetting there may be a delay coming the other way. So again, you're putting yourself at risk all the time. So familiarity can actually be quite dangerous. And we've seen it ourselves, especially some of our rural lines, where tractors, farm users, they're using all the time, but quite often they do misuse it. And have you ever had a near miss? I've had several, sadly. Uh, from the drivers, again, it's a regular occurrence. I'm not saying every day, but... I don't know if you're aware, but in the UK alone, we have 34 near misses every single day on the UK network. So, yeah, from a driver's perspective, we see it regularly. I've had one recently. It stands out like really like a sore thumb because it was very, very close to me actually killing somebody. 
Uh, it was on one of our rural lines uh, from Ipswich to Felixstowe. And as it came into Felixstowe, it's quite a sharp bend, some blind, basically. And on that bend are two crossings. And as I came around the corner, there was a chap with his dog. That's fine, he's on the crossing. He can clear it quite quickly. Unfortunately, the dog escaped from the lead and was running towards me on the track. And the owner, in a panic, decided to follow the dog. So he's now coming towards me. I'm heading towards him at about 50 miles an hour. I put my brake into emergency and I'm sliding towards him. And that's all I can do. And I actually turned sideways. I was convinced I was going to hit him. And the train came to a stand and I didn't hear a thud. So obviously I haven't hit him. I pulled my window down and he was halfway down the train and he went, sorry. And I said, sorry, obviously for him, he was fine, I'm sure. But I was all over the place. Oh, my heart was pounding. And yeah, it was really difficult because I almost went through all those emotions of killing somebody, but I didn't, which is a good thing. And so, yeah, that, that was pretty tough for me to take, actually. And it, the, the impact on me was quite, was quite difficult. I actually went back to, to Ipswich and went and had a cup of coffee and had a quick 15-minute break just to calm down. It's quite shocking. Yeah, so it's just as emotional having a near miss when you see a trespasser as it can be if you if you do. Absolutely, see. yeah. I mean, I've had both. Sadly, I have had a fatality, so I can relate to both. And it actually, was no different apart from you know the, the the last element of it, the last two or three seconds of actually striking somebody. It's just not worth it. It's not worth trespassing. It's not worth the shortcut home or whatever. No, you think you're no, because the consequence. Not only could you die, you can remember the impact on your family, your mother and father, uh, and and not just that, the, the driver. Of course, as I said before, it's it's. it's really traumatic and we would need time off work cancelling all that type of stuff ambulance crew fire crew they all come out to scene and and i i do go to scenes that have involved fatalities and a lot of people are impacted by it absolutely yeah so there's it's a big impact not just on on the individual but on the bigger bigger picture and the railway isn't just trains and tracks. There are so many hidden dangers. Can you talk me through there some are. of those? You're absolutely right. And we forget that sometimes. I think we just think about trains. And absolutely, they're important and they are a big risk. But we have overhead wires, which our electric trains run on, and they're 25,000 volts. And you haven't even got to touch them. If you get close to them, you will be electrocuted and ultimately it will kill you. So, And we have tracks, of course, where people run across. We have points where our trains move. They're moving all the time. And so if we don't know anybody's on there, you can quite easily get trapped. You could even slip over and break an ankle. So what should somebody do if they see someone on the tracks? I think first and foremost, I would dial 999, make an emergency call via the police force. If you are near a crossing and you've got access to a railway telephone, because all crossings have railway telephones, I would make that telephone call there as well. So inform somebody, at least do something with that. Don't just ignore it and report it as soon as possible. But 999 from the police is great. They will have a link. Uh, to, to network rail signal box or as I said before if you're near a telephone on a crossing that goes straight to the signal box controlling that situation. So tell somebody as soon as possible. As soon as possible immediately. And I think it is important to acknowledge that not everyone on the tracks is playing around or looking for a shortcut home and anyone who needs to speak to someone should contact Samaritans on 116123. They are there for you 24-7 every single day of the year. Glenn thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you it's been a pleasure. I'm back with our resident affairs guru, Ken Strong. Welcome back, Ken. Thank you for having me back, Lucy. So the summer holidays are here. People are off on their holidays and day trips across the region. Now, we want to help people save money. And today we're talking about a rail card, which offers great savings. So, Ken, what is a friends and family rail card? Friends and family rail card is a product. It doesn't necessarily need to be for a family. Hence, they call it friends and family as well now, where you have 
a group of adults and children and you can make a journey at uh, very good value fairs. The main condition is there has to be at least one adult and one child in the group. You can't just have two adults. There are separate cards for groups like that. If you have an adult and a child, up to four adults and four children, they can all be on the one rail card. So four adults and four children, so eight people on one rail card. Eight people on one rail card. And you can either have one named holder who can then take up to three other adults and up to four children. Or you can have two named holders, in which case only one of the two named holders. So if it's a couple of partners, one can take the children, the other one doesn't need to be travelling at all. Or then the, the next time another one, the other one can travel and the other one doesn't need to take the trip. So it's uh, it's it's quite flexible. But you have to decide whether you want to have both, pe- both people named on it. It's best if you're a couple to, to name both people and then you have the flexibility. You can have one person plus uh, three others or you can have the two named people plus two others. Or you can have the other named person plus three others. So it's, it's flexible like that. So it's uh, if, you, if you're a couple, it's best to name the two people on the card. As I say, you don't have to be related at all. You can just take some random children along if you fancy. Some, take the neighbour's kids out for a day out, something like that. Um, it all, it's all possible. Brilliant. So how much does it cost? It costs £30 a year or it's £70 if you buy one that lasts for three years. And you can get it as a physical rail card from the ticket office or you can also buy it online which is uh, easy to do these days, and have it as a digital real card. So £30 for a year and up to eight people on it, you must be able to pretty much recover the cost of the card in one journey? You can, If you make a journey that's of any reasonable length, you'll save the money back on the card straight away. And I'll tell you, when I used to work in the ticket office many years ago, I actually used to say to people they were making journeys involving adults and children, I'd say, buy a family real card. And they would say, oh, well, I don't know about that. And I'd say, well, if, you, if you're going to XYZ place, you will actually save you know, 20 or 30 quid on this particular journey. If you buy the real card, you know, and including the cost of the real card, they were actually saving money there and then. So we used to sell quite a lot to people just on spec because it, it was such a good deal. So it's, it's certainly worth having. Brilliant. There's such good value. I like that bit of bit of Ken history, you in the ticket office. <laughs> um, so can you suggest some journeys that people can take this summer where they can use the friends and family rail card? So you can use it on short hops. You can use it just going going down to the coast. Maybe I don't don't know if you live in Colchester, you could go down to Clacton or if you're in London, you could go down to Southend or if you're in Norwich, you could go to Yarmouth. You can use it on that kind of short or to medium distance trip or you can use it on longer journeys. You can go from Norwich to Cambridge or go to visit you know some of our nice towns that we've got very St Edmunds or if you're taking children maybe the seaside down to Cromer or down to Felixstowe there are lots of uh, nice interesting places you can visit and not forgetting the west side of the network you could you know go to Audley End House or if you live in Bishop Stortford or Harlow go into London for the day or up to Cambridge for the day possibilities are endless really and as I say all journeys take a discount it doesn't have to be a great marathon of a journey over a couple of hours it can just be a short hop of half an hour or so if that's easier for you to make brilliant thank you Ken so another great way to save money this summer thank you so much Ken and I will see you on the next episode thank you Lucy up next is greener Anglia Part of sustainability is about boosting the local economy. And one of the ways that we do this is by offering up our trains and stations as film locations. And this has a knock-on effect on the local economy. Today I'm chatting to Adrian Booth, Greater Anglia's commercial film liaison consultant. Hi, Adrian. Hi there. So, Adrian, what do you do? I look after commercial filming for Greater Anglia. 
which means facilitating the requests of television companies and film companies and uh, advertising agencies who want to film trains and stations and put them in their dramas and, and TV adverts. And uh, that means finding a place to film, getting all the permissions in place, sorting out the contracts, uh, agreeing a price and sorting them out on the day. And why why is it that railway stations and trains are so popular with, with film and TV companies? How does it add to a drama? The railway station, the, the train, is a touch of real life, of reality. They want to make things as real as possible. And this is our common experience. And uh, also, they're very useful for getting people, the characters from A to B, and have dialogue on the way. Or they, people might be waiting for a train or waiting for people to get off a train or even the the kind of pathos of parting and uh, uh, you know the sweet sorrow of all of that so there are there are so many reasons why um, scriptwriters include them oh. and now you actually accompany them on the day of filming don't you that's right and we do not want any any accidents on our watch so uh, particularly as things like distracted people you know might fall off the edge of the platform uh, when they're looking through the lens or something like that so I do have to do quite a lot of being with them just to watch out for their health and safety on the day. There are, there are very clear procedures that have to be followed to, in order to get all the paperwork it, um, right, to make sure that they can understand all the risks that, that they are and they might encounter. Um, what are the most popular locations on our network? Because, I mean, we've got some, some beautiful stations and, and in wonderful scenery. There are two particular stations that seem to have been singled out for a lot of attention, and they're both grade two listed buildings, but in different ways. Hartford East is a beautiful red-bricked, um, I think probably Edwardian, with uh, mock Dutch facades, and it's very, very beautiful. But then then there's uh, Broxbourne, which is a, um, a concrete cigar box, I sort of think of it as being. Uh, it's a good example of brutalist architecture, and the directors love it, you know. So there's um, there these sort of locations, but they both have different attributes. Uh, one is a, a very fast, busy station with a lot of trains passing through at speed. The other one's the end of the line, which uh, which means that you can actually film statically and have green screen outside the window, which is by um, computer technology they're able to by the, the wonders of modern uh, technology, they can make it look like this countryside is rushing past the window uh, and all of that. And we even move the train on the platform for them. So the, the different stations have different requirements, but those two are at the moment are most popular. Oh, so you've you've just revealed a secret of the trade. So when we uh, look at a film or a TV drama and it looks like they're on the train and it's moving, they're just sitting at Hartford East Station with something on the green screen. Some of the time, it, that is true. There are reasons for doing it because they... They spend a lot of time lighting the inside of the the the, um, the carriage, uh, which is much more difficult to do when it's on the move. There again, the uh, post-production technology element of using green screen is very expensive. So, you know, it's roundabouts and uh, swings. Sometimes they like the live film feel of a of filming on a live train. I, I said at the beginning that 
that this is all part of our sustainability strategy. It's supporting our local economies. Does the fact that we are offering our stations and trains as filming locations, does that have a knock-on effect in terms of other filming taking place in the region or do they use like local hotels, local restaurants, all that sort of thing? Well, the big productions, it's like the circus comes to town, you know, and uh, there's a lot of people and, and trucks and uh, the, the whole logistics of it is, is enormous. And once they find a base that they can film film at, they'll look around the, the area for different facilities. They might need a restaurant or a nightclub or, you know, there are many, many different types of um, of location they need. And if they can find that close to the railway station that they, you know, they, they found that they can film through us, that brings a lot uh, to the local economy, that's for sure. So... Adrian, which films and TV programmes have used Greater Anglia trains and stations as a background? We worked on uh, Killing Eve, uh, Series 4, Breeders for Sky with Martin Freeman, uh, I Hate Susie, which was uh, Billy Piper, uh, a show called uh, Suspicion that had Uma Thurman in it, that's an Apple TV production, just uh, little dramas like uh, This Is Gonna Hurt with Ben Whishaw for the BBC and a big one, Jack Ryan for Amazon. We did uh, actually at Liverpool uh, Street. That was an enormous setup. That one. I do like trying to spot them myself. I have to admit. And uh, have you ever been an extra in any of these productions? Very often, actually. I do a very good man reading book and man on the phone in the background. And sometimes, funny enough, the station might be so small that we're filming on, like it was with Magpie Murders that we filmed at Woodbridge in in Suffolk. It was so small, there wasn't anywhere I could be to make sure that everything was going to be safe. So I decided the best way, the best place to be was within the the extras that were just coming off the train. Oh, I'm going to have to look out for you as well then, Adrian. It, it all sounds just absolutely fascinating. Thanks so much, Adrian. And it's it's just really interesting to hear and, and good to hear how Greater Anglia is actually supporting the British film industry and the TV industry. So thanks very much for joining us as a guest on our podcast. My pleasure. It's now time for Meet a Member of Staff, and in this episode, I'm speaking to Paula Wilson, one of Greater Anglia's Area Customer Service Managers. Paula oversees 15 stations on our network, including the South End Victoria Line. Hi, Paula. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So you've had a really interesting career trajectory so far. So tell me about it. You've travelled all over the world. How did you come to work for the railway? Basically, after my career at British Airways, I was there for obviously quite a number of years. And when the pandemic hit and the airline industry began to change a bit, I thought it was a good time to try and move on to another challenge. So I applied. So what were you doing when you worked in aviation and what are the crossovers between your old job and and your current job? At British Airways for the kind of latter four years of my career, I was a customer service manager. I absolutely love travel. The crossover since I've came here, on paper, it's a very, very similar job, but the railway is completely different from the way I imagined it to be. The role is just so widespread and varied. No two days are different. So I'm enjoying a lot of different challenges, learning a lot about the railway itself, infrastructure, fleet. And then on top of that, obviously, I manage 15 stations. So there's a lot of 
bits and bobs about facilities management and working with different stakeholders that I hadn't done previously. So it's been a great opportunity, this one, to develop myself. So you've got a really busy area, the South End Victoria Line and also Shenfield. So um, very, very busy with commuters, a lot of school children as well in that area. What are some of the challenges that you face? Like you said, it is very busy, so are peak times. Um, if something goes wrong somewhere along the line, very quickly we get like a quick a big build up of different people, and it's a challenge to kind of maintain getting information out to everybody, making sure all the staff are informed. So when you've got different groups of staff in all the fifteen different areas, you need to cascade out that information to them because they're in a similar situation to you. So even though you've got potentially thousands of people uh, wanting to make their way into London, you need to make sure that the information gets out to everybody and nobody kind of falls through the net and gets forgotten. And what's your favourite thing about your job? Um, Being able to support people probably. Like being a manager in this company is genuinely an absolute privilege. Having had a number of jobs before, I've got a lot of things I can compare it to. And the, the best thing about Greater Anglia is that they really value experience on the railway. So that, like, as you know, we've got career pages that come out, internal vacancies only. So that alone tells you, like, they want to recruit people from the inside. So they don't put these kind of ceilings that other companies put in when they're recruiting. So you can go from being on the gate line to being in control. There's really no end to where you could end up being. And that's lovely to see. There's opportunities for everybody. And I really enjoy working alongside people and helping them get to where they want to go and develop themselves. And the company's framework very much enables that. So that is absolutely lovely. It's a really inclusive place, isn't it? And you don't necessarily have to have a degree or a master's or anything like that. You know, everyone is welcome at sort of any stage, really, as long as you're old enough. Yeah, I myself don't have a degree. And there's um, a number of companies who would not consider me for the role that I'm in now without it. And I'm, as far as I'm aware, I'm not doing too badly. You're you're doing great. (laughs) Travel's obviously played a really big part in your life. So what are some of your places both around the world and in the UK? Well, in the UK, it would be remiss of me not to mention north of the border. Yeah, (laughs) I love Scotland. You would think I work for the tourist board. Anybody needs travel tips for Scotland, then I'm here for you. Yeah, that's probably when I was travelling the world for my job, I would always kind of holiday back up in Scotland. So I've spent a lot of time going around the Highlands and Dorna. I really like mountains. Um, So Nepal's probably another favourite of mine. I did a hike out there for a month. I went to Everest Base Camp a few years ago. And ever since then, I cannot get enough mountains. That's what I do in my spare time. You must have found the lockdown really hard when we were completely grounded. Very much so. I used to be able to go to Bangkok if I fancied a Thai curry. And then for for two years, I've been going to kind of Tesco and Sainsbury's. And the pace doesn't the same, is it? No, not at all. Oh, you've had such an interesting life. Thank you so much for, for talking to me today and for being guest on our podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. It's time now for our Mythbusters segment. And in this episode, Lucy and I are discussing the ins and outs of lost property. 
Um, so Lucy, what should passengers do if they leave something on the train? Okay, so if you do leave something on the train, don't panic. It happens more often than you think. And we really want to help reunite you with whatever it is you've left behind. So the first thing you need to do is speak to somebody. I would speak to anybody who works for the railway as soon as possible. So whether that's somebody at a station or if you're on a train, if you sort of change trains and you left it on another train, just speak to anybody, any member of rail staff as soon as possible. If you have realised once you've got home, the best thing to do is to call our lost property team. You can speak to somebody um, Monday to Friday, nine to five. And outside of that time, there's a 24 hour answer phone. If you just leave a message, we'll pick that up as soon as possible or email in. So it's lostproperty at greateranglia.co.uk. And we will all set about trying to reunite you with whatever it is you've left behind as soon as possible. I often see some things on the at Greater Anglia Twitter, you know, oh, I've left my bag on on the train, I've lost my phone. Is it worth tweeting? Yeah, you can certainly tweet. Just get in touch with us any way possible. Sounds good. Do we get much lost property? And do we often actually manage to reunite people with their belongings? Yes, we get a lot of lost property. We get thousands of items um, left on our trains every year. And we do our best always to reunite people. And a lot of the times it is successful. Um, we had a really nice one recently where a man left a birthday cake for his daughter on the train um, and he got in touch oh, with us. I bet he was in trouble. Well, no, they d- I don't think anyone found out in the end because he managed to reunite them. Um, he called and spoke to somebody and they managed to track this cake down. It hadn't been too long. Um, and yeah, we had the cake, reunited it and happy birthday indeed. Oh, isn't that a lovely story? I'm so pleased to hear that. Now, that seems pretty unusual. I've not heard of birthday cake before. Um, What sort of lost property do we usually get? There are certain items that we get a lot of on the train. So um, wallets, phones, keys, that kind of thing. They often fall out of your pocket. Laptops, all kinds of things like that. Kindles, books, anything like that can be left behind. Jackets, clothing, coats and hats and scarves in the winter. So those kind of things are quite usual. We get some unusual things left on our trains as well we've had a front door like a that is crazy a proper full-size front door with a number and like a door knocker on it and everything um <laughs> and that was left on the train that came into norwich station and we obviously took it off the train and the man came back the next day to retrieve his lost property he came back in to claim his front door so very pleased to reunite the customer with his item on that occasion <laughs> Not the sort of thing that you'd normally take with you on the train. I reckon he can be forgiven for leaving that on on the train. Although although you'd have thought he would have noticed it as he walked past to get off the train. But there you go. I mean, how can you forget your front door? It's not every day you travel with your front door, I hope. (laughs) Yeah. God, imagine that. Imagine the feeling when he got home and and realised he'd left his front door on the train. (laughs) Anything else unusual, Lucy? Um, oh, all kinds of unusual things. Um, a wooden leg we've had before, which <laughs> begs the question, how did the customer leave the train without, out, without the wooden leg? Um, we've had a large amount of cash. And I mean, we're not talking coins here that have fallen out the pocket. We're talking a lot of cash. It was um, a bag which had tens of thousands of pounds in it, in, in notes. Blimey. Yeah. And um, as soon as any money is handed in it's put in a safe place and um sort of logged in in front of another member of staff and on this occasion it was it was tens of thousands of pounds and the person did come forward to claim it and it was a young person and they were a student and it was their student fees their parents had given them the money to pay for their university fees in a bag which they had then left on the train so again really really happy we could reunite the customer with their 
missing money on that occasion. Oh, thank goodness for that. Otherwise, that would have been an awful lot of shifts in the pub that he'd have been working to uh, to pay that Absolutely. off. So what happens to the lost property then? So all lost property is uh, collected and logged, um, usually at a station, sometimes at a depot if the train goes back to the depot after its last last working. And we log it. We keep it for a very short amount of time before it's collected by a company called Packex. And they take it to their big, uh, like a warehouse really, where they store it. And because of that, there's obviously a cost. There's a cost to us in keeping and storing this this lost property. So there is a slight cost to some people when they get their items back. Um, It ranges from just a couple of pounds to I think it's 20 or 25 pounds so that it is capped. But yeah, there is a cost because it is a charge to us because it happens so frequently. So the, the moral here is please, please, please don't leave your items on the train. Please check before you before you leave the train that you've got everything because it's horrible. That, you know, the moment you realise you've forgotten something, your heart stops, doesn't it? You think, oh my goodness, where is it? So please try and take it with you in the first place. Oh, that sounds like good advice to me. Thanks very much, Lucy. That was really interesting and I'm sure it's extremely helpful to customers. And I look forward to talking to you next time and busting some more myths together. <laughs> Thanks, Juliet. Up next is travel surgery, and today we're talking to Robbie Knox. Robbie is an award-winning writer, producer and director. His past credits include presenting for Soccer AM, and he's a proud Norwich resident. Robbie, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, The award, I've sort of put that on my Twitter bio. not really won many awards, but we got an award at Soccer AM for the best portrayal of a stamp from the Norwegian post office once. So I just put that, and that counts. Deeply impressive. So it's not a BAFTA, but it's honest work. (laughs) Um, So, uh, you know, stamp impersonating and everything else. You've had a very varied career. Can you talk us through it a little bit? How did it start? I was born. um, I was born, went to school, went to university, went to Canada for a year, came back, started working in a TV studio for a year. Then I went to Soccer Aim and worked there for seven years. Then I went to work an internet TV thing for a bit, for a couple of years, with um, a guy called Simon Fuller, who managed the Spice Girls and David Beckham and things. And then I went to, I started my own production company, and more recently I started doing YouTube because I'm having a midlife crisis. <laughs> and I do a podcast called Jack Mate's Happy Hour that is moderately popular. And so your YouTube video, I've had a quick squiz at it, you seem to cover all sorts of things. I mean, what, what what's, tell us a bit more about I that. describe it as it's... I started doing YouTube because a friend of mine, Will Brazier, I never really thought of doing it. He said to me one day, why don't you do a YouTube channel? And I said, I think I'm probably a bit old for that. I'm 45. And he said, I don't want to sound rude, but I know what it's like being an 18-year-old starting uni because every September there's 10,000 vlogs on being an 18-year-old. So I don't really know what it's like being middle-aged. So I thought, all right, fair enough, I'll do that. And then the podcasts. Now, you, you talk about being a 45-year-old man. The first I heard about your podcast was from my son, who was first year at university. So this would be happy hour. Yeah. So um, my friend Jack, who I met years ago in a Chinese cooking competition, he's a YouTuber and he has been for a long time. He's quite popular. He's, he has a podcast and they invited me along on it once. And then I just sort of came back a couple of other times and then eventually just, <laughs> just through no real decision-making process. I'm now a permanent co-host on it just by not really leaving but yeah it is, it is popular it's there's we got these statistics from spotify around christmas time that said like a quarter of a million people listen to happy hour more than any other podcast which is 
mad because no one had ever really told us any statistics up until then, so I didn't really know. Oh, so it's a, f- a few more than life on rails then, just one or two more, I think. For now, but we're looking over our shoulder. Yeah, yeah. obviously. Yeah. You're into brewing now as well, aren't you? How did, how did that happen? Uh, very good question. Again, for, through the YouTube channel, I worked out that I could... I can I make a bit of money from ad revenue. The way it works is if once you reach a certain level of subscribers and watch time, YouTube will, will show adverts and you will get a percentage of the money that they get from advertisers. So it's not always a huge amount, but most of the time I'll probably make 50 quid at least sort of thing. So I worked out that I could try any idea up to the value of 50 pounds as long as I make a YouTube video on it. So I got during the pandemic, I got like a beer making kit and made a beer and then it surprisingly turned out pleasant because my memory of home brewing was in the like the 80s and 90s and mate's dad getting some kit from boots and making beer in the kitchen that was disgusting from all reviews I didn't drink it in the 80s I was I was 12 um I did and I, did, okay. I, I will concur it was absolutely disgusting okay good um but no this turned out really well and then and then so I got some a bit more kit did a bit more brewing went to a brewery through a friend knew to say to make another video of getting professional brewers to try my beer they were quite complimentary as well and then my friend Mike and I thought well let's just start up a sort of virtual brewery if you will and we've just been around I think four or five different breweries now brewing beer with them and and selling it to the to people <laughs> to drink and you have partnerships and it's bin day breweries isn't it it's called bin day brewing yeah I made a video that was quite popular about taking the bins out I, I, I really want to manage expectations <laughs> if anyone's thinking of going to my YouTube channel this is the level we are <laughs> pitching it at here so um monday was not an exaggeration that's not all you did in the pandemic is it because you moved you moved to norfolk oh god yeah sorry <laughs> what, what, what i done um that was terrifying uh no, yes i moved to Nor- norfolk so i went to university at uea in norwich university of east anglia and i loved it good please you're here so what is it you love about the city i, I like the culture of things there's when i was at uni in my first term it's for the older people, we, we had like Pulp, Stone Roses, Black Grape, all playing like my first time I was there because cause there's not really many places nearby. I know now you get gigs at Thetford, but there's not many people. No one's coming and, and playing Bungie. <laughs> They're either coming here or, or or not, sort of thing. So you get quite a lot of good bands here, a lot of theatres, UNESCO City of Literature. I like all that stuff. I think the people are friendly. I think it's a beautiful place. There's lots of pubs. Everything, really. I think it's, it's great. So what kind of things do you like to do with your family? I like going out places and doing things. <laughs> so, so fake. Um, we like going to beaches. We like going to the countryside. So the boys are quite into playing Fortnite and games like that. I try and get them, when possible, outside, away from screens and, and doing things. So so a lot of that sort of stuff. I do like it if, if it can involve a pub as well at the end of it sort of thing for some lunch just seeing all the joys that the Norfolk countryside has to offer brilliant well as part of this part of the podcast we recommend a place for you to go and we'll give you a ticket and send you on your way how exciting so, have to go immediately <laughs> right now right now bags good. packed kids okay. are waiting no Fantastic. no not at all so we are going to suggest a place called chapel and wakes cone which is in essex there's the east anglian railway museum there I love a railway museum. Yeah? Yeah, I love a railway museum. I used to go to, my grandpa worked on trains. He, he was a guard on trains in the olden days, but he started his career as steam and stuff like that. But I used to go with him all the time to Glasgow Transport Museum. So I'm already, I'm already convinced by this place. Oh, you, you'll love it then, because there's something for everyone. There's 
little children up to adults and you can actually sometimes actually drive the trains that's incredible steam days diesel days you can drive them why isn't this the Um, biggest attraction of the country well we're going to make it the biggest attraction Um, it's a really nice place um, set in loads and loads of acres so good for picnics great for children Um, and also there is a beer festival there oh wow this is good I'm I'm sorry. Can I go on the beer festival day, or are you just teasing me? You can choose. Okay, I'm in. I'm in. All right, perfect. This works out brilliantly. Brilliant. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been an honour. And can I just say, an honour to be in the upstairs of Norwich Station as well, in the behind-the-scenes bits I've always admired from the concourse. Our pleasure. <laughs> Thank you very much. And that rounds things up for this episode of Life on Rails. We hope you've enjoyed discovering a new perspective into Greater Anglia. Please do tweet us at Greater Anglia PR and leave a rating or review on your podcast platform. Life on Rails releases every other month, so check back soon for episode six. And in the meantime, follow or subscribe to the podcast and visit our website at www.greateranglia.co.uk forward slash podcast for more information. Thanks for listening.